0: The rich not just get richer, but they're going to actually become genetically and and machine-oriented better than us. Welcome to
1: the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hello, hello, my Lion Cubs, and welcome back to another edition of Lions of Liberty. And boy, if I do say so myself, and I do, I've got a really interesting interview for you today in this, the 287th episode of this program. And that means you can find today's show notes featuring links to all sorts of things that we discuss in the show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 287. And before I dive into things with my guests today, I want to take a second to remind you that if you want to see this show grow and expand and blow the F up here in 2017, you can help us do so. By becoming a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, that'll give you access to all sorts of exclusive audio content like the Conspiracy Corner, which we just released this past weekend for subscribers only. Boy, did we have fun doing that one. You can learn everything you need to know by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Today's guest is a journalist having worked... As an on-camera reporter for the National Geographic channel, many consider him responsible for the popularization of the transhumanist movement, and we'll get more into just what that is during the interview. He is the founder of the Transhumanist Party, under which he ran for president in 2016, and he has recently announced his candidacy for the California governorship in 2018, and he's running for that office as a libertarian. I am very pleased to welcome Mr. Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan, are you ready
0: to roar? Indeed, I am. Indeed, I am.
1: All righty, Zoltan. And and we'll talk more about your your run for California governorship. Like I said, you're running as a libertarian, so that's going to be of interest to a a large portion of the audience of this program. But, you know, the big issue you're associated with is transhumanism. And I I really want to dig into that. But before we get too far there, I just want to make sure everyone is on the same page, because not everybody out there may be familiar with that term. So why don't you just start by telling us exactly what is the concept behind transhumanism?
0: Sure. Well, transhumanism is a social movement of a few million people around the world and maybe a lot more now. And these people want to use science and technology to radically modify the human being and also to modify the human experience. So it can be anything from kind of like exoskeleton suits that would get a disabled person out of a wheelchair. It could be something like chip implants so you can replace keys. It can also be something just like driverless cars, but whatever it is, it's radical technology that is redefining what it's like to be a human being.
1: So when you describe it that way in many ways, it sounds like uh, we've been having a transhuman movement since the dawn of mankind in a certain way it's just that with technology kind of uh taking place and, and changing so rapidly, we're just experiencing it kind of in, in a very in a much faster way right now would you just would you say that's accurate
0: yeah, yeah, actually, some of the historians of the movement would say that you know transhumanism began when we uh you know we picked up a rock and decided to make it into an axe. But, you know, a, a lot of other transhumanists would say, well, is flying in a jet airplane 30,000 feet uh, you know, above the, the earth? Is that transhumanism? But most people really like to think that, um, you know, it's something like when you put on virtual reality gear, that's really transhuman because you're kind of transcending what your senses and things like that to get into a sort of a different type of reality. So it's something that usually most people say it's, it's really got to be radical technology.
1: It seems to me like the big focus when it comes to transhumanism is really the merging of man with technology, whether it's uploading our consciousness, something extreme like that, or just something as simple as having a robotic arm and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, no, no, I would say, you know, that is perhaps, well, you know, there's kind of two two avenues out there a lot of the older school transhumanists, for them, the most important thing is to try to overcome death with science and technology. And that can be, they can do that in many different types of ways. But a lot of the younger generation, you know, they're not worried about dying because they're going to live another 80 years or whatever. So they're really interested in the in the kind of the technology aspects, like the robotic arms that they can now throw a football a mile in length and stuff like that. So yeah, there's really two different types of kind of fields out there, depending on, I guess, (laughs) almost your demographic and your age group.
1: Right. I want to take the clock back just a minute. And uh, how did you first become so interested in in this concept of transhumanism to the point that, I mean, as far as I can tell, you may be literally the world's leading enthusiast on the subject. I mean, you're pumping out articles every week, you're running presidential campaigns to draw attention to the issue. How did you become so passionate about the subject?
0: So, you know, I'd always been interested in science and in technology. And I was kind of one of those kids that, you know, worked on science uh, kits all all the time in my childhood. And then uh, I was reading a lot of science fiction as I went to college and things like that. But as I began working for the National Geographic Channel, I had a really close call with a landmine in Vietnam while doing some a film assignment. And, you know, after that incident, I just sort of thought, wow, you know, I almost died. I wonder if we can do anything really about death. Now, I've known, known, you know, the movement, transhumanism had, has existed 20, 30, 40 years. So there have been people trying to overcome death for a long time through science and technology. But all of a sudden, when I had sort of had a very close call, I realized, wow, maybe I should dedicate a lot of my energy to the movement, maybe my resources, maybe my journalism skills. And ultimately, that's what happened. After the landmine incident in Vietnam, I came back and wrote a novel called The Transhumanist Wager which did really well and sort of put me kind of as a public figure for the movement. And uh, that's sort of how I got to where I am now.
1: Uh, so it took a, a near-death experience yourself to actually become obsessed with the idea of that we maybe don't need to die ever. I mean, isn't that the ultimate goal of, of transhumanism is to be able to extend human life and if you perfect the process, extend it indefinitely?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I and, and I would say broadly speaking that that is the number one goal is is to kind of perfect life. And you know you can you know there's a lot of people you know can argue what perfection actually is and in most cases you know uh, at least in my case I would say well everybody leaves me perfectly alone so that I can kind of evolve for the universe doing whatever I am using whatever technologies I want and, and that's sort of the libertarian aspect of it but other people you know have ideas of sort of merging all of humanity into one and becoming like this great cosmic universe but. Whatever it is, there's a lot of different factions of transhumanism, but it always involves radical science and technology and improvement. Improvement is sort of the, 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 you know, the operating kind of procedure of transhumanism. We just want to improve ourselves.
1: Now, you're not just an enthusiast in the sense that you like to talk about this, this subject. Do you, uh, from what I understand, you actually have a chip in your hand or had a chip in your hand at one point. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, no, I still have a chip in my hand. Uh, it's they're tiny; they're the size of a grain of rice. You can inject them yourself. I got to put in on my presidential uh, campaign bus tour uh, as part of a biohacker kind of uh, event that was put on. And um, you know, now when I go surfing or when I go jogging, I don't have to take keys with me because I I can open things with this chip in my hand as long as the uh, the the you know the key code is kind of embedded into this uh, to this locking system. You can also start cars and. Mine actually, from my 2006 presidential election, if you come close enough to me, my chip will send you off a a text message that says, win in 2016. (laughs) Really?
1: So if I'm walking by Zeltan Isfin and just like, you know, zoning out, looking at Facebook or something, I might get a text from you, from your hand, from the chip in your hand, telling me to check out your presidential campaign.
0: Yes, if you have the right software, that 100% will happen.
1: That's so interesting to me. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, it, it sounds so sci-fi, but I, it seems like a lot of this stuff is closer than a lot of people realize because I didn't even realize what you're telling me could be done yet. It, it seems like, like something maybe humans will do in 20 years, but this is so close that it's here. It's on top of us, uh, and you're actually experiencing it. That's just it's just kind of mind-blowing to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people worry about the chip and privacy things and stuff like that, but a lot of people don't realize that, A, When we say chip, it's not a chip in the sense that it's like you can program it or it's a microchip with a bunch of information. It's really a responder of some sort where you program information into it. And then if you have something out in the environment, it responds directly to you. So it's just really an RFID tag, except a super souped up one. But one of the things that's going to be coming through the pipeline next, in fact, there should be here um, in the next month or two, is really people putting their credit cards into their chips. So when you go to Starbucks, you no longer need your wallet with you. You just swipe your hand and all of a sudden payment has gone through. And, um, you know, that basically this little implant in my hand can already reduce my wallet size by about 50 percent. And for a lot of people, you know, that's convenient.
1: Absolutely. And and, and along with that convenience, of course, become, comes a lot of the concerns that a lot of people have about this technology. I mean, you might have the extreme where some people just associate a chip in your hand with, you know, the mark of the beast or something like that because of their religious beliefs. And then you have people that just might have maybe more you know valid concerns about the police state and the possibility of well if you got this chip in your hand and it's it can, controls all these devices well can that be hacked can that be tracked by the government uh how much information is going to sort of you know become a, a possible burden for you if if you you know if you have that on you at all times uh what are these the kind of concerns that you hear from people uh, you know when you're talking about this out there and giving speeches about transhumanism
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so when we took our bus tour and I got my chip in California, and then we drove all the way across the, you know, to the East Coast of Washington, D.C., and we spent a huge amount of time, months, literally in the middle in the Bible Belt. I mean, everybody kind of like me <laughs> that seemed that and then they find out I had a chip implant I said oh this is the mark of the beast this is the work of the devil you know and, and frankly a lot of people said the exact same thing when the social security number came out because we have been kind of trained culturally to believe that any kind of marking on you is something that is religiously you know evil or part of this uh, apocalypse whatever but the reality is you know the chip is nowhere near as sophisticated as the cell phone. And it's the cell phone that's really tracking us these days. I mean, we all live by it. We we talk on it. We, we search internet on it. It's three feet from our head when we're sleeping. And the, it, we have so many apps. There's no way to really stop them from tracking, even if it's just tracking our, our consumerism. But the reality is so there's a huge amount of privacy that we've sort of given up to be a part of the technological age. Now, I'm not necessarily happy about that, but I think the real key is to have different types of software programmers that can create ways to keep the government out of your life. But to to say no to the technology up front, like the chip implant, just because we're worried about hacking, we're worried about privacy, that's not the proper way to go. I think the proper way is to embrace the technology and then look for ways to protect that technology so that no one can use it against us in a negative way.
1: And the timing of this interview is pretty perfect on this subject because it was just last week that WikiLeaks released the, the Vault 7 uh, with all of the information about how the CIA is able to use our current technology to track us and spy on people, whether it's smart cars or smart TVs or what have you. So when people are concerned about the, quote, possibility of technology, you know, transhuman technology being used, well, this stuff is already being used in the, in the regular technology that we voluntarily choose to have. So like you said, the concerns are legitimate, but it, it doesn't mean we should reject all the technology. We're already embracing the technology. It's just a matter of having to have certain controls or or what have you. I'm not really sure what all the answers are to protect the privacy of, of individuals using this technology, but just because there are concerns doesn't mean it should be rejected wholesale.
0: Well, yeah. And you know, one of the things I've advocated for in the past is I've said, well, like if, if I'm going to be tracked or if other people are going to, you know, take away my privacy. Well, we should take away the privacy of officials of the government itself. We should be using the same technology to watch them very closely so that they can't do things against us. You know, this is a two way street. It's not just that we're losing some, you know, some of our privacy. We can also make it so that they lose it. So we have a lot more transparency in the government in itself. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is that you know, in this day and age, when, for example, a police pull someone over and they're being videotaped everything they do, we can make sure that we can, you know, we have some type of way of fighting back by saying, well, look, the police did this wrong or did that wrong. That's a way to protect them. And that's, of course, the, the, the other side of the street for technology. It can also be used to protect ourselves.
1: Can you think of any you know, p- particularly sort of mind-blowing concepts in transhumanism that the average person might hear and say, oh my God, that's impossible. That that technology, maybe that's a thousand years away, but in reality, it's going to be either five years away or is maybe even here now. Is there anything that, that stands out to you?
0: Well, you know, I think the one thing that I deal a lot, well, there's a couple of different ones. There's so many amazing stuff, but let, let's focus on one that almost a little bit with this privacy issue in hand, is the robotic eye. There are about six universities or companies around the world spending tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars cumulatively on the robotic eye because We have two eyes as human beings, and we're going to be able to create eyes very soon. We already have them. I mean, blindness, essentially, if you have access to the technology, doesn't fully exist anymore because we have now ways to put in some kind of filming device that can tie right into your optic nerve, and then you can retrain your brain to see light. So blindness in certain ways no longer exists and probably in two years will not exist whatsoever. But this begins – a whole new way of looking at things because if you can replace one eye with a robotic eye and you can now stream media directly into it or we could have you know different types of podcasts filtering through that eye and also you have to understand this eye can the eyes that they have, the robotic eyes, can already see better than the human eye. Naturally, they can see further, and naturally they can see much closer. You can see the germs on your on your partner, on your children. I mean, so <laughs> I think the robot... don't
1: really want to see. <laughs>
0: you no, know, of course. You'll be able to see poisonous gases. You'll be able to see if somebody, uh, you know, <laughs> release gas in a restaurant. That's what smells. I mean, when,
1: when you describe this eye, I, I envision the, the movie Predator, where the predator has the different little eye modes, and he can turn on one mode, and he's, he just sees heat, so you can't hide from him, because he sees all the, all the life and you can switch to another mode and see other things. That that's is that the kind of thing we might be able to do eventually?
0: Well not eventually. That's the kind of thing that if you have this already built into your eye, you can do it today. Because you know the thing, the technologies you're talking about already exist. It's really just a matter of can we commercially put that into the eye socket and have a tie to the optic nerve and use it. And, you know, frankly, of course we can, it's really just a matter of how much money do you have to spend and is it viable from a commercial point of view? And this is what I, one of the reasons I bring, you know, the, the robotic eye up is that since most humans have two eyes and since the new robotic eyes, they can make them look so realistic, like from any kind of distance, you, you can't tell if your neighbor has a robotic eye because they look so good that, would you get one if you knew it was going to be a real upgrade on your life, on your on your, you know, you no longer need your little tablet to look through, you just stream stuff directly, directly into your eyeball, which goes to your brain. There's a lot of reasons why this kind of upgrade will probably work on a lot of people's society. And I'm saying within 10 to 15 years, this could be something that we all start doing. And there's a lot of reasons to do it. For example, you know, you walk into a room, and your child is there. And let's say you're in the jungle, you know, you live in Brazil or something, you know, your eyeball will be able to track poisonous spiders or snakes a lot better than it does. Your eyeball would always be activated. It would smell, it would be a built-in fire alarm. I mean, these are the kinds of things people are working on because naturally they're going to add so much safety to our human lives. And that's why I think the robotic eyes, probably something on the 10 to 15 year timeline that you're going to see us all getting just because it's going to be so, so, so easy. I mean, you're going to see hundred miles. Is
1: there a, a concern, I guess, about... You know pe- people talk about income inequality. It's a very big political issue, as you know. Uh, but at some point, we might actually see sort of, like... If we just want to stay on the eye thing for a second, you could start with, say, eye inequality, where all the richest people in our society have these amazing, perfect eyes and they buy them for all their children. And now they have this huge advantage over, you know, maybe the other 95% that can't afford them yet. And and then you might see the, the same thing with any sort of technology. I mean, if you, you talk about gene editing a lot, you can maybe even eventually edit our genes. So, we're just smarter if we have that technology do you see any danger in in all of this technology sort of falling into maybe what people would call the one percent i would call more like the 0.0001 uh, is there danger of them sort of maybe hoarding this technology and almost creating like a separate species where one set of humans has greater technology greater literal greater iqs and can sort of dominate over the rest of them and, and that is yeah, course, yeah. That's a very sci-fi scenario but you did get into this from science fiction so no you've probably heard no, it before no, it,
0: Oh, no, no, you know, on my campaign trail, there are two questions I always got asked, and I'm still getting asked them all the time. The first is, well, if everyone lives you know indefinitely, won't we have overpopulation? We can address that one later, But the second one is about inequality because naturally, everybody's worried that the rich are gonna get this stuff first, and they literally leave us behind and um frankly, I think it's it's a realistic worry, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why when I even though I'm running for governor as a libertarian, I've told people I, I still maintain that I'm sort of a left leaning libertarian because it's not because I want to be that way. It's because I worry that incrementally the, the rich not just get richer, but they're going to actually become genetically and, and machine oriented better than us and that those advantages are going to be coupled on top of their wealth if you think it's a free you know market right now at some point it won't be free because you'll be dealing with someone whose IQ is always 200 as opposed to ours you know the average being one something 115 or one, uh, 107 or whatever it is and you know is that correct and you have to ask yourself well you know at some point what if they become a super species and we become almost like gorillas to that 1% <laughs> Do we – does the government step in? Do libertarians step in? And th- these are very tough questions for libertarians. It would
1: be almost like you're you're constantly playing chess against the, the world's smartest computer that knows your every move and you can never possibly catch up if you don't have that same computer.
0: Yes, and what if that person controls your rent? He controls where you get your food from? I mean he controls your life. These are – your children's school – This is when it becomes very, I think, dangerous. And at some point, you know, we must step in and say, well, at least we must try to make the playing field as equal as possible. And it's not because um, I want to do that. I would rather just leave it a completely open market. But if we do that, and all of a sudden one side of the species, you know, humanity takes off and leaves everyone else behind to be some subspecies. That's not fair. You know, I've, I've, People ask me all the time about artificial intelligence, and they say, should we support it? And I say, yes, we should support artificial intelligence to the point when it becomes about 95% our capacity, and then we should stop, because I see no reason on planet Earth to have a species that's twice as smart as me. I don't I just don't think that's going to end well.
1: Well, you know, we're we're smarter than almost every other creature on the planet and you know, look who dominates them. <laughs> so Yeah,
0: and look at what we've done to the planet environmentally and look how we just hunt species down, we make them go extinct. We have to be careful. Even as libertarians, we have to be careful because at some point the free market really can be dangerous in a very in the in the techno kind of futurist world we're discussing where change happens so rapidly. I think that's one of the biggest Differences about transhumanism today versus, let's say, 10 years ago, is the change of scientific progress is amazingly quick. Like three years ago, we were talking about driverless cars, how cool it would be. Now we see the Teslas on the road, you know, and that's just what we see today. Now, pretty, probably three or four years, we're gonna have robots opening our front doors. I have a robot in my house; it can do a thousand different things. I mean. The, the is world that an is actual changing physical
1: robot with like arms and legs or <laughs> yes, yes,
0: yes. It's about four and a half feet tall. I took it on my bus trip during my presidential campaign. And uh, at the time it was like the, you know, the, the most sophisticated robot that you could buy for around, you know, 500 bucks. And frankly, it does a million as basic AI in it. And it can do basic answers. Okay. It's already two years later. It's already obsolete, does, but do um, you have
1: it, a name for this robot.
0: Yes, his name is Jethro, named after the <laughs> protagonist of my uh, my novel, *The Transhumous Wager*.
1: It's so funny because in, in some ways it sounds so crazy for someone to have you know a robot butler or whatever. I don't know if you call it a butler, but that, that's how I envision it. I remember watching the movie *Rocky IV* when I was maybe eight years old, and they had a robot butler. So this is and obviously they probably had way way better technology even back then. So you can only imagine what kind of technology exists that we we can't even
0: access yet. It's really mind blowing. Oh no. I mean, you know, this thing can do things like basically teach your kids and play with your kids and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's what's happening is what's crazy is how fast in two years the market has changed and it becomes more sophisticated. And Now, science grows exponentially. So whatever happened in two years is now going to happen one year. And then after that's going to happen in half a year and so on and so on. And I think a lot of people don't realize how fast the world is changing. You know, genetic editing is perhaps the most important science now of the 21st century. We didn't even know about it two years ago, basically. And now all of a sudden, we're talking about eradicating malaria from the face of the earth using genetic editing. And in some ways, that's wonderful. But at the same time, it's wow. We've you know we've had <laughs> 750,000 deaths from malaria every year, and all of a sudden we have the possibility to stop that. But it's a it's a very serious power in our hands. Because we can also augment our intelligence, and the Chinese are working on it. The Americans aren't, though, because we have a moratorium on that type of research, unfortunately. But you can see how crazy and how fast some of this technology is. This is one of the reasons why I'm running for governor is because I'm trying to be the very first person to create a lot of the libertarian policy on it so that hopefully— we don't get stuck with a bunch of moratoriums or we don't get stuck in a, in a religious culture that's afraid of this stuff. We can move forward if, with it, but, you know, probably cautiously. I'm going to say cautiously myself, but I'm still a techno optimist. I still want to push forward with it all.
1: Now, Zoltan, I want to dig a little bit further into just how this concept of transhumanism intersects with the ideas of liberty. We're going to do that in just a minute after a quick word from today's sponsors. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at WeAreLibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please check us out at WeAreLibertarians.com. Hey, everyone. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is liberty. Each week, we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com and you can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty rock and roll. Sure, and let's get into more about how this all intersect with politics, like as I mentioned earlier, you started an entire political party, uh, really just to promote this movement. Uh, I'm sure you probably didn't think you were going to win pre- the presidency in 2016 as as a member of the transhumanist party, but you certainly generated a lot of conversation. Uh, I heard your name during the 2016 campaign several times, and uh, you know you got the word out there. I mean, I, honestly, I only really I've I've heard the word, but I only heard about the concept really of transhumanism to to a deeper extent in the last few months uh, through yourself and also Ford Fisher, who I know you, you are working with on the transhuman. Do- Documentary coming up soon. Uh, he's a past guest on this program, and I, I've really dug into it since then. And I, I can tell you're ex- as excited today as I am, just learning more about it now. Uh, but it sounds like you've had this excitement for you know this whole the whole time you've been involved in this movement ever since you almost got you know killed by that landmine and started digging into it. So I mean, it's definitely uh it's definitely kind of a uh, contagious your, your excitement about this.
0: Well, cool. Let me just tell you a personal story for one of the reasons why I'm excited about it. You know, unfortunately, my father is. Uh, uh, around 72 73 years old he just had his fourth heart attack and he's certainly not going to live much longer not more than a few months or max a year or two whatever but you know after his fourth heart attack he's he's been kept alive through a lot of radical technology He had his first heart attack when he was 51 about 22 23 years ago all this stuff of replacing you know putting valves inside to replace veins and arteries and uh, bypasses and stuff like this you know 15, 20 years ago, and now even today, what they're doing, this is all very transhumanist technology. And of course, they're also working on an artificial heart. In case you don't know, a third of everybody you know, a third of everybody you know will die from heart disease or a heart attack or something related to the heart. And it's a pump. Why don't we create an artificial pump and stick it in everybody, and then we can save those third of the people? But when you have a family member that's very close to perishing, you know, you love him. You don't want that to happen. You look for ways to overcome that, Uh, especially in my cases. I don't believe in an afterlife. I, I, you know, it's not that I'm a a hardcore atheist, but I'm I'm just someone who's, you know, I don't believe in something afterwards. And
1: maybe there is, but you haven't seen anything, you know, in the world that we live in that can tell you that that it's there.
0: Of course, of course. And so, you know, my father's sort of in that same boat. He feels the same way. But it's been great that we've been able to give them these extra decades. And I wish we could give them more extra decades. In fact, if we just spent more money and believed that we could do this and had more people try to, you know, innovate in terms of technology and science, we will at some point make it so that people don't have to probably die at all. And you know, okay, that's very controversial for some people, but that's really the core of why I'm excited about transhumanism. I got two children, I got a two-year-old and a six-year-old. I mean, the worst thing in the world you can ever imagine. Is someone have a child having cancer and having to die? Well, the people that are out there fighting those things are the real heroes of society. I mean, they're saving lives. Like I said, the person who, invi- who invented genetic editing can now save 750,000 lives. I mean, give that person a Nobel Prize. I mean, This is incredible stuff from a humanitarian perspective.
1: So what are some of the biggest issues, as you said, that you're, you're running to as a governor for California, as a libertarian, and you're doing so, again, to maybe lead the way in crafting a lot of policies related to transhumanism? So what are the some of the biggest political issues that you think this technology will bring up, and how would you go about addressing some of them?
0: Well, you know, so the, the the one that I keep getting myself in trouble for, of course, in, in both the Libertarian Party and, and just with friends, uh, Libertarian friends, is that- I already know where
1: I, you're I, going with this. <laughs> so I, I'm going to let you try to hang yourself instead of making me do
0: it. <laughs> good, good. Is essentially, look, automation, robots, software, they're taking jobs. When Trump says, oh, we're going to bring back jobs or immigrants are taking jobs, that's not the truth. That's not the truth at all. The truth, our jobs are being lost to automation and to technology, and that's not going to go away. In fact, that's going to increase. We have millions and millions of jobs that will be lost probably in the next 24 months because of automation, and after that, tens of millions of jobs. So what do you do with all these people who have lost their jobs and probably cannot be retrained in time with a new job because then some robot will take that job? And so you know, one of the major platforms of both my 2006 presidency as well as my, as you know, the gubernatorial race I'm in now in California is to support a basic income of some sort. Now, for libertarians, that's a very controversial idea because some libertarians in the past have supported some notable ones. But uh, at the same time, there have been various different versions. And of course, I have, would have a version that would not raise taxes, would take money from the military, would take money from mostly, I think, from uh, some of the federal natural resources that the the government is holding. A hundred, a hundred. trillion worth, and try to give that money, monetize our country, and give that directly to people who have lost their jobs so that they do not revolt, they do not cause civil strife. Because I can tell you, in two or three years, when four million truck drivers, and these are grown men, you know, driving trucks, and many of them bear guns, they're tough guys. When you take away their jobs and don't give them anything in return, they're not just going to sit down. We need a policy in place, not just in California, but in America, that will make it so that people when they lose their jobs to robots, have something else to look forward to, and it, it probably won't be working anymore.
1: So, uh, you know, what do you think that humans are going to do <laughs> once once technology sort of runs everything almost automatically? Uh, I, I know there's a, a lot of a lot of kind of free market people free market economists who have broken this up down and a lot of them will argue that you know over time the greater technology even even if you're losing jobs right now you know you're freeing up so much human productivity that it's not a bad thing that you don't need to expend human labor to you know to make a car or what have you and I, I do te- you know I agree tend to agree with that in the long term but I do I do see that there is this short-term problem that at the very minimum that's going to occur you know you're not gonna have a 55 year old guy who's been trucking all his life making six figures suddenly lose that job and he he's not going to suddenly acquire necessarily the new skills that he needs to live out the last 10 years of his career you know so so there is some need i'm not i don't know if your solution is the one but it certainly is a problem that will need to be addressed somehow
0: yeah no and there's no question and i look i'm not trying to say that i i have the best solution no and also i want to you know tell everyone out there that there are so many different forms of of basic income. I mean, Richard Nixon almost passed one uh, during his presidency. There are many different forms that are negative taxes and stuff like that. Various libertarian versions out there. Some are just purely socialist. That sound crazy. Uh, that would bankrupt the country. But there are ones out there that I think can can balance what's happening. But one thing I, I often point out is that people think that you know by it's worked out so so far that in our economy, all the technology has always created new wealth and new jobs. But what's happening is inequality is growing. And we kind of go back to that same dilemma we had earlier in, in our, the podcast, which was, what if the 1% end up with everything, including all that technology to make themselves something more special than us? At some point, libertarians will have to say, well, the great majority of us are not that 1% so what do we do it, you know it's the same idea of why we despise tyrants you know we don't want someone having power over us nor do we want the 1% to have power over us equality is kind of the backbone of a lot of the libertarian ideology out there so we need to sort of insist on it now you know again a lot of the ideas that i put out with the basic income would tap into the federal natural resources out there, which are you know worth huge amounts of money, about five or six times the national debt, we could wipe out the debt with it. We could monetize the land and give it to the people. It belongs to the people after all. And that could pay for a basic income for, for literally decades and generations to come. So that's one way of doing do it. The problem is it may not be actually enough for a living standard. So we still are going to have to come up with other ways. But at least it gives us a ground floor so people don't starve to death. And their children have something over their heads. Because I can assure you, I've been to, you know, I began my career at National Geographic as as essentially a war zone correspondent or a conflict zone correspondent. When, you know, kids don't have roofs over their heads, parents freak out and do crazy things. And that's how wars start. And that's how terrible things happen. So, whatever happens, if we want America to continue, we're going to need to protect our people so that they don't feel this need to stand up and fight. Because if they do, all those truck drivers are going to pull out their handguns and show the government and show, you know, society what they're made of. And that's that's where we don't want to be because we don't need a civil war. What we need is a smooth transition where everybody gets somehow a, a better life through all this technology. And I think we can get there. We're just gonna need some very sensible, sensible policies.
1: One more thing I want to ask you about directly tied into the the politics of this is that you've um, on multiple occasions have advocated or at least suggested the uh, possibility of a robot running for president someday. Now, is that just something you kind of controversially put out there to draw attention to or do you actually (laughs) think we could see this and you think that's actually a reasonable thing that we might want to even accept?
0: Well, so, you know, let's be honest. I did. I do put out their things to sometimes provoke because when you're running a presidential campaign as an independent person, essentially a third party, you are trying to get attention. But let's be honest. They have a new competition. I think it's a five million dollar purse for the best robot that can give a TED talk by 2020. Now that's three years away. Now, if you've heard TED talks, they're incredibly complicated. So you could have a, you know, ask a robot a question, and um, it would then say, okay, and then give you a 20 minute TED talk. We are, and that's in 2020. And mind you, that's 36 months. So the point is, it's very, very likely by 2028 we will have machines that are at least as smart as human beings, if we allow that to happen. There might be some regulations put in or whatnot. One thing we might be able to do is program a, a machine that is as smart of a, as us to be truly altruistic in, in the sense that no president has ever been like that. It would only do from a statistical point of view what is the, in the best interest of the people given the maximum amount of people. Let's say we you know, put libertarian philosophies in it and they've just said this is what we're going to do. Well, you know, I mean, that's essentially what they're doing in many hedge funds these days where AI is taking over the trading, working off algorithms that are just designed to make as much money as possible. Well, we could do something saying we want to make as much prosperity given all these parameters for Americans. It's very possible by 2028 we'll have that. The real question is, will we allow that? Will we want that as, as a human species? And this is a, you know, this comes into this kind of crazy world we're about to enter in 10 years time where. How far do we actually merge with machines because if we if we start to do that, then they might end up being people that leave. but don't look at a, a an AI as only a president. maybe the idea of being a president is a leader right now. Maybe we should look at it in terms of it's just something that makes our lives the transitions the, the the commerce the you know the different kind of interactions that much more smooth. Maybe we don't even need a president, and that's where AI could step in, and that's kind of one of the ideas I liked about it. Was It wasn't this AI dictator or AI president. It was just a machine that made it so we didn't even need a government.
1: And going back to the sci-fi scenarios, I mean, I was a fan of the Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, which is really even more relevant since it really addresses the technology side of things nowadays. But when I hear this talk of the the robot being programmed to do what's best for humanity, the, the scenario that jumps to my mind is... Well, I've done the math, and it uh, turns out what's best for humanity is to kill ninety percent of them, or kill them all. I mean, are these scenarios that you think are? I mean, they, they, the more I talk to you, the less science fiction and the more possible science they sound. But I mean, are, do you see these things as being something that man can sort of just control through how it builds this technology, but by building in mechanisms or failsafes that can maybe say, "All right, but if you actually try to, you know, cause genocide here, uh, we have something that'll just shut this whole thing down."
0: Well, you know, I think that's the big that's the million dollar question. And that's why so many that's why AI is such a topic in the news these days is because you have a bunch of people saying, no, we can control the machines. And you have a bunch of other people saying, I've seen the Terminator Terminator too many times. You're not going to be able to control it. And honestly, as a techno optimist, I believe we can control the machines. But, you know, there's also different other ideas coming through this pipeline. I recently wrote a short fiction story called The Jesus Singularity, because We have essentially 535 members of Congress, uh, the president, uh, eight Supreme Court justices. Everybody believes in religion. There's a very strong chance that any type of uh, AI that comes into being in the military is certainly leading the way. I've been consulting with the uh, the U.S. Navy. They would be interested in probably giving it some of its its Judeo-Christian values. Now, what do you when you say that? You mean what do you mean like teaching it the Bible or teaching it this? And this is when you get into this incredible idea of like, wow, uh, are we recreating another human being in this machine? And is it going to be full of all the same uh, you know issues that we have, psychological issues? Can you program a machine to hate and love and these kinds of things? Well, maybe that shouldn't be in charge of us, especially if it's so much smarter than us. And I think that's where everyone's going to have to sit down and decide how far we want to take these machines i've even written an article in new scientist about robots voting because you know we have already billions and billions of robots on planet earth but in 10 years with various upgrades those robots are probably going to be pretty sophisticated, at least as sophisticated as a 18-year-old person, uh, which would have voting rights in America. Do you give the millions of the billions of robots in America voting rights where what states do they vote in? Does that change the presidential election? Does gerrymandering come into effect? I mean, the world we're entering in is so complex that I think the next 10 years will be certainly the most interesting uh, time in history. And we're going to, as a society, we're going to have to look forward and try to deal with all this because it, it is scary stuff.
1: Well, you think gerrymandering is bad now. Wait till the robots are, are just, you know, running their algorithms and calculating the perfect district so that they, they never lose their robot election.
0: <laughs> and of course, and what do you do with your Echo or what do you do with your iPhone when the server's in Nebraska, but um, you're sitting in California, you know, and where does that belong? I mean, the whole, the whole thing you know, it dissolves in what, we, what, we're, what we've been used to the last, you know, few hundred years. I mean, it, it gets so amazingly complex. And I think what happens is then you get somebody like Trump in office and he's talking about very basic things like, you know, building a wall to keep immigrants out or, you know, we need to bring back jobs to the manufacturing. I mean, th- this is not the, the, what's happening with the world. What's happening with the world is, is 20 miles from me in Silicon Valley and they're working on neural prosthetics where you can literally use telepathy to control your iPhone, or you can fly drones with your mind, or you can trade stocks with your mind, or you have robotic eyes that are connected to these things. This is really the future, and this is not some faraway future. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent on this type of stuff already. You can go out to a store and buy some of these mind-reading headsets. I mean, so I think what I'm trying to say is the world is going to be incredibly complex moving forward through the next decade, but we, you know, as libertarians and as just everybody in general has to stand up and face these issues and ask these questions. Most importantly, I think we have to ask these questions because um, they are going to be challenging.
1: Well, I think what you hit on there is key. I mean, we might not all have all the answers. You don't claim to have all the answers, but- this technology is here. It's not even just on the way. It's here. And it's going to continue to be here in, in many different forms. So we can either ignore it or we can at least start talking about how these things are going to be addressed politically or what have you. So I'm so glad that you are out there, Zoltan, on the on the forefront and, and trying to bring attention to this issue and how we're going to sort of tackle this stuff as a society. So uh, before I let you go, why don't you give everybody out there uh, some more information about how they can find your work and everything else you've got going on, whether it's your articles and that sort of thing, and as well as, of course, your run for the California governorship, how they can find out more about that.
0: Sure, sure. Well, just so your, your listeners know, you know, I I began my futurist career by writing a novel called The Transhumanist Wager, which has now officially been um, compared over a thousand times in writing to Atlas Shrugged. So it's very much an Ayn Rand-esque, but a futurist thing like that. So check out that book on Amazon, The Transhumanist Wager. And to find out more information about me, just go to ZoltanIshman.com. I have a huge amount of my videos, a lot of my articles. I'm a columnist, advice, Huffington Post, places like that. So uh, I'm always putting out new articles and and find me on social media and say hello. All right. Well, Zoltan, obviously, you're going to
1: be in the political eye, especially for me out here in California. So we'll definitely keep an eye on your campaign and, and everything you're doing with the transhuman movement. And we'll definitely keep in touch. So keep up all the great work.
0: Hey, thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me on your podcast.
1: You got it, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. Keep on roaring. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zoltan Istvan, a guy I've been hearing about for quite some time. I remember hearing about his transhumanist party uh, way back during the 2016 presidential election and the whole year run up to that. Uh, I was spending so much time interviewing libertarian candidates like Austin Peterson, Mark Allen Feldman, guys like that, that he kind of slipped under my radar at the time. But since then, I've dug a little bit more into transhumanism. And I got to say, I'm really fascinated by the subject. I was pushed along a little bit by Howie Snowden, a guy you guys all know from contributing to this podcast and many other roundtables. And uh, also through a past guest, Ford Fisher, who I just found out basically as I came to interview him on totally different subjects that he was actually producing a documentary on transhumanism. That's the Transhuman Documentary. I will link to my interview with him. Of course, Zoltan is a part of that documentary as well. It certainly gives us a lot to ponder. I know not everybody out there is going to see Zoltan's political worldview as entirely libertarian in nature, but in many ways, a lot of these concepts of transhumanism, I I believe, are going to line up with greater freedom for people. Of course, there's always that risk of uh, freedom, what seems like freedom, quickly turning into totalitarianism. So, as with all technology, we just gotta be on the lookout for how it's used, how it can hinder individual rights, and, and how it can maybe even make people have a little more liberty in life. And while you guys ponder that we're going to take a minute to dig back into the liberty mailbag and answer a few letters of liberty this is
0: another letters of liberty song
1: that last one i wrote was a downer it somehow just fell wrong the lion said they didn't like it i'm not sure if that's true All right, and thanks once again to my man, Dan Smotz, who wrote that little jingle for us. Dan is, of course, also the designer of our T-shirts, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.store. And if you guys do, in fact, decide to join the Lions of Liberty Pride, you'll get a automatic 20% discount on everything over at that store, including our Lions of Liberty beer koozies. So you can drink along with us, keep your drink cold while listening to the show. And Dan is actually just became a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride himself. so Dan glad to have you aboard a super fan. Our first letter of Liberty today comes from Nathan Vowell and Nathan asks is Austin Peterson right and or justified in dismissing the NAP the non-aggression principle Now Austin Peterson has been a guest on this program a couple times and and I asked him about that the first time he was on this show. And honestly, I I do believe that his position on the NAP is a lot more nuanced, uh, really honestly, than even he put out there in the beginning. I, I think he originally really attacked it, A, because he does not think it's a good way to explain the ideas of liberty, and B... To get attention, to be trolly, to get people talking about him, to get people angry at him, because that gets the attention on the internet. And I think that was his strategy when he first started kind of coming out against the NAP well before his presidential run. Uh, But really, in talking to him about it, I don't think he's actually against the concept of the non-aggression principle. Uh, He said as much on this program, and I'll link to that episode in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 287. What he really is is against the... NAP as the be-all, end-all explanation for selling the ideas of liberty. Uh, You know, he thinks that there are a lot more nuanced situations. And I agree with him, in a sense. Now, I agree you can't just shout NAP, non-aggression principle, and expect people to totally understand your philosophy. Uh, I don't think that means you need to reject it uh, or really, you know, to say it's wrong or say we shouldn't talk about it. I mean, it's a good way to live life. It's it's a libertarian way to live life, to live by the principle that you don't aggress against other people, that you don't initiate violence against other people unless some sort of violence has been initiated against you. I think that's the proper way to look at things. But at the same time, I, I do think you need to look at things in a more nuanced way, and you can't always do that just by saying that you know non-aggression principle, just by using that phrase. Uh, I think we can actually still use the non-aggression principle and just simply discuss the nuance of particular situations. Like, for example, noise pollution. Now, if, so, if I'm driving by someone's house and, and I hawk my horn at somebody, no one's going to say I violated the NAP, probably, and, and and I'm you know causing too much pollution and aggressing against them. But if I take that same car and park outside somebody's house and pound on my horn and I don't let go for hours and hours and hours, at some point I'm going to consider that a form of noise pollution, and I would consider that an act of aggression. Now, that also doesn't mean that I can go shoot that person in the head because they honk their horn really loudly at my house. But if we're only talking NAP, well, he violated the NAP, and now I can go violate his NAP and kill him. Obviously, most libertarians don't actually think that that simplistically, and I'm not trying to imply that they do, but I do think that there is a lot of nuance that isn't explained simply by using that term. It's not as simple as, as don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, even though I, I do sort of agree with that initial way to tell people the basis of the philosophy. But when you really apply it to real world situations, you do need to explain things further and realize that not every situation can just be is so black and white. There is nuance involved and we need to break it down. We can still use the principle in order to help us, us break it down. And you know that might be where, where Austin and I disagree quite a bit. But at the same time, I don't think he's necessarily wrong in criticizing the strategy that many use by just kind of putting it out there and and not being willing to dive into the nuance. And this doesn't describe most libertarians, but I've seen libertarians like this, that reject all nuance. It's NAP and that's it. And if you try to have a further conversation, you are a statist. And I think that's just silly because guess what? Most people are going to require a further conversation and ask further questions and not really understand just saying, not aggression versus aggression. That's the end of the story. I've got another question from Zach Vall, a regular contributor to the Letters of Liberty. And Zach asks, do you think we will ever see the repeal of Obamacare? Now, ever is the is the key word here, because that's a tough one. I mean, in 300 years, who knows what our government is going to look like? Uh, there probably won't be something called Obamacare 30, you know, 300, 400 years from now. I think we can almost definitely say that. Uh, but if you mean ever in the sense of will this Republican Congress repeal Obamacare? Uh, no. I really don't think so for a lot of reasons. One, when you condition the public and put them on a, a, what is essentially a public welfare program in a sense even though that's not the way it's set up and the government's not the direct payer that's exen- essentially what this scheme is we're subsidizing people that didn't have insurance before uh, and and you know many of them couldn't afford it and now they have it at, at a subsidized rate It's going to be very politically difficult to kick those people off, and I don't necessarily even advocate doing that overnight. But the fact is, there is just simply no political willpower at all in the Republican Party other than from a few people such as Rand Paul, Mike Lee... Some people might say Ted Cruz, can't say I trust the guy, to be honest. But there, there's a very small movement, the Freedom Caucus, that really does want to actually repeal it, and then institute a plan which is all about free market reforms and, and helping people via tax credits and that kind of thing. Which isn't perfect, but it's it's moving in the right direction. But even when, if we get some kind of free market reforms and whatever new health care pill crops up, you're not going to see the repeal of Obamacare. You're going to see tweaks to Obamacare Honestly, even if the best case scenario that incorporates a lot of Rand Paul's ideas passes, I still don't think you're going to see a repeal of a lot of the provisions of Obamacare. The best we can maybe hope for is re-legalizing uh, catastrophic insurance and some kind of changing of the mandate. But I do not think that we're going to see a scenario where, you know, where people that are subsidized now lose their insurance. I don't think that's going to happen, again, because it's very politically difficult. And that kind of is the cornerstone of Obamacare. So as far as a repeal, no. Not happening. Not in our lifetimes, at least not in the next four years. And finally, I've got another question from Letters of Liberty MVP. This guy bombarded us with questions, and that's awesome because I can always use more. Andrew Swain asks, what disturbs you most about the Vault 7 revelations? It's actually pretty easy because what disturbs me most is not the revelations themselves, I think that everything released in at least this first part, we've only seen year zero. We've only seen the 1% of this Vault 7 CIA stuff so far. So there's a lot more to come. But what we've seen so far, a lot of it is all stuff that I think a lot of libertarians, maybe some kooky conspiracy folks might have already believed was happening this just confirmed that the technology exists and that the cia was more than willing to use it the technology to spy on us through our smart devices through our amazon alexa which you can also listen to the lines of liberty podcast on i'd like to point out (laughs) through smart cars through smart tvs a lot of people that are in tune with this stuff you know are not exactly surprised and blown away by it But it should be really disturbing. It should especially be disturbing to people that aren't like us, that aren't even though the nerds that are buried in this stuff already. But that's the most disturbing thing about it is that no one's disturbed other than people that are already horrified, already talking about this stuff for years and years and years. Those people are disturbed, but there's not really new people that I've seen that are disturbed. Uh, either people are still ignorant about it because it's not talked about on CNN and a lot of people still get their information from CNN. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I sound like Donald Trump, but it's fake news, my friends. It is fake news propaganda, the majority of the reporting from CNN and these mainstream outlets. That's why we're seeing such a resurgence or a, a original surgence, I guess you might say, of alternative media, uh, of of what many people call fake news. But you know, at the end of the day, no I I just think that the fact that people aren't I mean there should be riots in the streets you know you saw some riots and some protests after Trump was elected this is what should be getting people out of their seats this is what should be getting people to the streets this is what should have people down in Langley protesting knocking down the doors saying how dare you how dare you do this to us not only do this to us but do it with our tax money that you steal out of our damn paychecks and probably even other money because the CIA is funded by so much black money and they're probably getting money well not probably we know for a fact they're getting money through illegal activities through the drug trade this has been going on for decades it's all been very public i don't need to go into all the conspiracies right now but that's a great segue because we did go into a whole lot of conspiracies on our special conspiracy corner bonus program which was just released this past weekend of course if you didn't hear it that might be because you're not yet a member of the lions of liberty pride anybody who joins up for only five bucks a month and by the way we give you guys 12 to 15 free podcasts a month. You're going to get those even if you don't sign up. But if you do toss us five bucks or more a month, you're going to get access to our Bonus audio, which so far includes a blooper reel. We're also going to have an extra Felony Friday bonus roundtable coming up, and just released this past weekend, The Conspiracy Corner, where we get into all sorts of conspiracies. The theoretical topic was George Bush and his foreknowledge of 9 11, if there was any. And uh, we kind of went all over the place. We talked about just about everything. We touched on OJ Simpson, on the Oklahoma City bombing. We touched on all sorts of stuff. You're going to have to become a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride to hear it. So, how Head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash support and check it out. Guys, it's been a blast. Don't forget, this is only a third of what you get every single week here at the Lions of Liberty Podcast. You also get Brian McWilliams this coming Wednesday with Electric Liberty Land. He'll look at all sorts of comedy, culture, and liberty-related stuff for you. And then move it on to Felony Friday, where John Odermatt looks at the broken criminal justice system. We try to have a little bit of something for everybody, including now those conspiracy folks out there. So If you want it, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash support and join up. Or just hit that subscribe button on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. If you want a way that you can help us out without actually sending us any money, that's fine too. Just tell a friend about the show. Help us organically. It doesn't need to cost you a dime to help us grow. We really do appreciate every single one of you out there listening. Until next time, folks. Live long! And live free.